Hello out there. This is Glenn Lowry of the Glenn Show, Brown University, glennlowry.substack.com. And I'm with John McWhorter, my conversation partner, John Columbia University, woke racism, the blockbuster, and uh, linguist extraordinaire. Uh, and uh, we're back, uh, the black guys, and we're talking, uh, we talk every other week uh, and uh, do a Q&A once a month, which uh, you can contribute questions to if you subscribe at glennlowry.substack.com. John, how are you? <sighs> Pretty good, Glenn. I've got too damn much to do, but that is better than being bored. How are you? Well, I'll just remark that you <sighs> had a little hint of despair in it, and I worry for you, my friend. <laughs> it's, it's too much. You know what, uh, I, you know what yeah, is actually one of the problems is that there are a lot of people out there, you know, who I don't think know that. And I can tell that there are people who write me and they're waiting to have these long exchanges and I get it. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's really, but better than bored. It's better than being bored. So, yeah. Now I agree. If you have a public platform and you know, you're kind of accessible, if you actually answer your email now, they have, you know, there are some people who have hired people to read their email. <laughs> I've heard about that. They don't, they don't. Uh, and if you take the time to respond, you know, I mean, even if the time is only 20 seconds to type thanks to something that gives people a sense that the door is open and they can come with more. And I get it. You know, I, I remember being on the other end of that. Um, but, um, yeah. yeah. So what are our issues? Uh, I'm, I'm good. Oh, well, the issues are plentiful. Biden's press conference. Mm -hmm. President, did you see Bill Maher's routine? I don't know if you follow Bill Maher. Last night, uh, HBO broadcast his weekly. He's back from a break, and uh, he did a thing on Biden. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it for you. I think I haven't, wants... haven't seen it yet. This was his new rules, and it was his last rule that Biden needed to go, and basically he's too old and whatnot. And he proposed that <laughs> Biden and Obama. <laughs> Divorce their respective wives in a phony way, but legalistically, and marry, <laughs> and Obama become first lady, who's been given the portfolio of le of running the government. <laughs> you have to see it. I, I, my little explanation doesn't do it justice, and he has a whole background story about how yes, 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 that is a co totally cynical use of the of the legal rules to try to get Obama back into power because he served twice as president already. But the Republicans, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court appointment and all that kind of stuff, already bending the rules enough that if Democrats don't learn that it's, you know, it's a cutthroat game and you got to do whatever you have to do in order to win, rules be damned, then Democrats will never be able to prevail. This is my, uh, his justification for this extremely cynical proposal. Mm -hmm. But the whole point, of course, it's a joke. I mean, he's a comedian. Uh, I mean, I love the way that comedy expands what it is that you can actually say because a direct you know literal attack on biden would would be you know political madness uncharitable at uh, least yeah that's right but the insinuation that you know there's a there's a vacuum here at the the head of the left center uh political uh dynamic in the country and you know there's the the bench is so thin says uh bill maher that people are talking about bringing Hillary back into play. <laughs> Although, you know, what what exactly would you have Biden do? I mean, it's a it's a it's a tough question. 
at this point. Not be Biden. Not not be him. I mean, you think <laughs> yeah. that he could be a wily political player the way LBJ was a very long time ago? I'm not sure that that's possible these days. I don't know, man. I, I'm not a... I don't have a feel of a command over uh, the politics of it. Uh, obviously, Biden is a figurehead or a representative of certain larger forces that play in American politics. I, I mean, he, isn't he kind of a avatar? Uh, wait, no, avatar. Mm -hmm. isn't, doesn't he? Isn't he kind of virtual? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> You mean what does he stand for? What what does Biden stand for? What's what's the movement? I think what he stands for what, what what yeah, what does he represent? He represents what LBJ did well with a very different Congress. I think he represents Democrats and Republicans coming together and getting things done and finding a kind of a happy medium. But unfortunately, things have changed so much during his tenure that that just doesn't have any legitimacy anymore. It can't work. It can't be effective. And he doesn't have the energy to try to work his way around it. That's the problem. I don't think he... he... Where is the vision? I mean, it, it's just a kind of uh, embodiment of this uh, blob of a, a uh, foggy, shapeless kind of ideology of do-goodism. But it, what is the Democratic Party, really? I mean, is it a left party? Mm. Is it a union party? Is it a working class party? Is it an anti-wealth party? Uh, is it an uh, anti-American Empire party, uh, no, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is it? A fight for democracy? Is that what Biden represents? He he represents uh, a kind of uh, preservation of protecting us from Trump. Isn't that what he? I don't think that that's what's really. That isn't what's really in his belly. He wasn't expecting it to be all about that when he started thinking about what he was going to do at the end of his career. I think what he really wants to be is the genial, unideological, great uniter. And so one of his highest moments is when he's vice president and Obamacare gets passed. He likes that. But in terms of saving the democracy from Trump, that's not the kind of person he is to be all about one person, to be all about a negative and so he's, I hate to say this, but in a way he's out of his element because what's going on now is not the Congress and not the country that he came of age in. He would have been better 25 years ago, but he would have been better as Clinton, but we're stuck with today. Well, what is the agenda? There's Build Back Better. How do you feel about that? There's uh, voting rights uh, being federalized. How do you feel about that? Uh, there's Afghanistan. How do you feel about that? There's Ukraine. Did you see that press conference? Yeah. yeah I mean, he, he stood up there for almost, what is it, two hours or something like that. Um, he stepped in at one time after another after another. The White House had to back, uh, walk back the implication that if he didn't get the John Lewis uh, voting rights bill and uh, uh, let's let all the rules about elections be decided from the federal government bill enacted, uh, then would the legitimacy of the 2022 congressional elections be called into play? Uh, he fumbled that. Uh, the, the minor incursion, if it's a minor incursion into Ukraine, maybe we wouldn't respond in the same way. Uh, you know, uh, made statements that had implications for European allies that then had to be walked back and so forth. 
Yeah, there's a and what about and what about the boldness of Russia? I mean, these these things have come up since Biden has become president. Has his weakness and somehow encouraged the enemy to take uh, risks that they otherwise wouldn't take? I think it's not only his weakness, but it's the weakness that goes back to, for example, Obama. In many parts of the world, we've had this sensible kind of timidity. Remember Syria, and you know, don't cross this line. Syria crossed the line, and nothing really happened. And so people like Putin can see that there won't be any real consequences. And when you deal with the fact that, you know, frankly, half of Ukraine wouldn't mind this anyway, it's a very complicated situation, you have, um, why would he not in terms of realpolitik as opposed to what our particular ideals about sovereignty, et cetera, are? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame. Although, you know, Glenn, this is something that I've been thinking about this week on and off. Studies show that efforts to suppress people's vote, such as Democrats' vote or black people's vote, don't work very well. It used to be that there was one study that suggested this. At this point, it seems pretty conclusive that these efforts, as disgusting as they are, don't work very well. Now, it is absolutely repulsive to see so many Republicans committed to having as few black people vote as possible they're doing this because that suppresses the Democratic vote. They're not doing it because they think black people are gorillas. It's, I think the idea that it's a recapitulation of 60 years ago is pure theater. However, it's absolutely repulsive that they don't feel bad doing something like that, given the history of this country, given the history of voting rights. All that is, is self-standing. It, it's clear. But as disgusting as it is, it doesn't seem to work very well. Notice that we're not supposed to talk about that. There's no room in the conversation for that. And so what we're supposed to say is... Look what they're trying to do, as opposed to look what they do. No room for, you know, they're trying to do something really shitty, but it doesn't really have much effect. So, for example, I'm told that my railing about, quote-unquote, woke racism is idle because the real problem is that there are people trying to stop black people from voting. It's a legitimate point, but then if the response is, do you notice that they're not really stopping that many black people from voting if you actually study the situation? And this is, you know, no, this is not just people talking out of the side of their mouths or making something up. This is based on studies. If you say, well, you know, that's not working too well, that's not considered a legitimate contribution to the conversation. So it's no one's interested in the good news. It's just like with the cops. And you show that, you know, actually the cops don't murder black people disproportionately. That The good news is not welcome. Same thing here. What is that? You know, I, f I find that an unfortunate wrinkle in this whole voting rights conversation. What those people are trying to do is absolutely disgusting and doesn't work. Can we not keep those two things in mind? Apparently not. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I don't think I agree, and or maybe what I want to say is I don't think I look at it in the same way. No, I was just saying, um, I'm not sure I agree with the way that you're looking at it, which presumes that the, the reason for uh, voting security uh, initiatives that Republican state legislatures may have enacted is to keep black people from voting. Uh, I, but I wanted to bracket that disagreement and come back to it and, and just comment on your uh, primary observation, which is presuming that Republican motives are disgusting. Nevertheless, they're not effective, and people won't let you say that because they're married to this accusatory narrative and they need a victim, they need an injured party. And so it has to be that asking for voter ID 
keeps black people from voting, even if it turns out that that's not the case. People don't want to acknowledge that because they want a cudgel with which to beat the uh, Republicans in Georgia or whatever for voting, you know, trying to keep minority people from voting. But I'm going to say this. I mean, it, it will it'll get me into trouble. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an act. I, I think this idea... This metaphor that uh, black voting rights, which were hard fought for in this country, I mean, there used to be literacy tests and there used to be violence keeping black people from the polls. And it really was racially motivated disenfranchisement. Okay? Asking for a voter ID at the polling place is not, I repeat for a second time, it is not racially motivated voter disenfranchisement. It is setting some rules about how you're going to confirm the identity of people before they cast the ballot. You may not like those rules. You may think that the rules should be more liberal. Now we can argue about what should be the rules. I assume there should be some parameters. So now we're arguing about the rules. But to presume that my motive is racially motivated when I argue about the rules, I mean, let's just flip the script on mm -hmm. that. Suppose somebody is liberal on a law and order. Suppose they think there are too many people in prison. So, so suppose they think that the VA shouldn't be so punitive and sentences are too long and the cops are too, suppose they think that. Now I could assume that it was a racially motivated thought that, that they think that because they don't want black people to go to prison and there's a disparity in black, I could, I could impugn their motive. But what we're really talking about is what should be the rules. Now the position that there should be no rules governing who casts a ballot is not itself a neutral position. Uh, it has a political consequence. And moreover, it devalues the validly cast ballots of other people. Are you going to tell me I'm a racist because I have an interest in election security? Is that where we are? How uh, should there be a national holiday for Election Day? I don't know. Have you noticed the contradiction between these two purportedly progressive positions? On the one hand, you should be able to cast the ballot as early as possible, which is to say there should be no election day. Normal voting should be you got a week or a month and you mail in your ballot, so there should be no election day. On the other hand, they want to make election day a national holiday. So do they revere the idea of an election day? Let's just think about what that means. That means we all are oriented civically toward the exercise of going to the polls on election day, that is a nation building small commitment. It's not quite drafting you into the military, but it is kind of drafting you into a ritualistic enactment of democracy. That's called election day. If you're for election day, how can you be for the most liberal early balloting uh, conditions as possible so that it doesn't cost you anything to cast the ballot. You can do it just like you send in your, uh, your utility bill whenever you get around to it. Now, so, so I'm completely cynical about the manipulation of the historical achievement of African-American equal political citizenship on behalf of a transparently partisan undertaking which is to empower the Democrats with a margin in the Congress that is paper thin to regulate the conduct of elections in every state in this country. That's a political move. That's, that's not about civil rights. It's not about the empowerment of black people. So no, I don't assume that Republican legislators that want election security are ipso facto because of that 
trying to keep black people from voting. Can't you see that is a narrative that they have built for their own political purposes? Glenn, this may this is one of these moments between us, I'm, I'm thinking. I really don't know what you're talking about. Are you, and maybe I'm going to learn something. Because, of course, the way I've seen this is that this sudden concern with voter fraud has been proven again and again to itself be about nothing in particular. There's not nearly enough um, tomfoolery and voter fraud to justify this this hawk-eyed attention to this, such that I'm not just most, talking about voter fraud. To put it most people, I'm not just talking about voter fraud. Okay, well, most people's conclusion has been that there's some ulterior motive here, and I always thought it was pretty clear what the ulterior motive is. Are you saying that there is not, on some level, for some reason, a quest to suppress the black vote in the name of saying that there are voting irregularities that we need to work against and et cetera? Are you not saying I'm saying, that I'm saying it's vastly overblown. I'm, I'm saying it's vastly overblown. I, I'm saying... What leads you to think that? Is there... Uh, well, I, I, I've just said what I thought about that. Um, I've said, for example, requiring is a there photo a... ID... Go ahead. Yeah, but why is it suddenly so important to nail down those exact requirements? What was wrong with the way it was before? Isn't the idea here to make it harder for a certain person who has a less organized life or is less educated to be able to do the right thing? This is what many people suppose. No, I, I that, don't know how you know that. that incorrect? I don't why know how so you know that. I, I could turn the question back around on you. How do you know that people who want laws uh, governing... Uh, voting procedures made more secure are doing so in order to disenfranchise minorities. You just conceded or acknowledged or proclaimed that they are not particularly effective at disenfranchising minorities. So there, there's a, I, I, there's a, a, a difference in worldview here. I agree with that. Stacey Abrams is the poster child of voting rights. She lost an election for governor in Georgia. Did that election legitimately determine who was the governor of Georgia? Were the disputes between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp about uh, election procedures a matter of uh, civil rights and, and equal voting inclusion? I think there's partisan poli uh, politics that are at play here. There are Democrats and there are Republicans. They're going to define the issues so as to uh, best advance their interests. As I said, I'll say it again. I think it's a cynical appropriation of the history of African-American struggle for voting rights to have this dispute uh, about uh, these laws that are before Congress right now uh, cast in terms of the people who are on our side are for Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. The people who are on the other side are a bunch of racists like Bull Connor who are trying to keep black people from voting. To me, transparently, that is a manipulative misuse and mischaracterization of the actual situation. To me, what about partisan gerrymandering? Is partisan gerrymandering necessarily racist? I don't think so. I think well, that, partisan gerrymandering used to be word much yes. to the favor of Democrats. No, I mean, what I'm saying is state legislatures have become more under Republican control, control in the last two decades. I'm saying that the balance of power between state mm -hmm. legislatures and the federal government is a, is a matter of, of significant political consequence. 
The left and the right in our politics are contending. The people who like, quote unquote, states' rights, whether it's people who want independent policies about uh, immigration control so that they declare themselves sanctuary cities, or independent policies about uh, uh, other matters. The, the, our intention with the people who are trying to expand the ability of the federal government to dictate these things. I mean, th this is a part of American politics. Is it racist? What side are the racial justice warriors supposed to be on? Are they necessarily on the side of more federal power and less state power? Why is that racist? Mm -hmm. I mean, historically it has been. Historically mm -hmm. it has been. Mm -hmm. We're at an impasse. Yeah, I um, Glenn, aren't you? I have to be gentle. One can split hairs, but there's still the question. Okay, your answer to the question as to why suddenly people got so inflamed about all of this roughly in the aughts is because of the gradual takeover of state legislatures by Republicans, and they wanted to kind of get things cleaned up. But what was wrong before that justified all of this extra effort? What was the problem in 1989 or 1996 that meant that they had to start paying all of this attention to doing these things differently? It's unclear to me what the problem was. The, the, the system wasn't perfect. As we learned, there's a whole new book stirring up the business about John F. Kennedy stealing the election. The system was never perfect. But it's not as if it had become so strikingly imperfect by roughly 1995 that this had to start. And it seemed well, to me I'm that not accepting. I don't accept that characterization of the history. I don't think there's something sudden that goes on. I mean, I, I can't cite chapter and verse, but uh, I, I don't believe that to answer. I, I want to have a voter ID with why are you asking now to have a voter ID and you didn't ask before is a particularly <laughs> compelling argument. It's an ad hominem argument, which is your whole argument here is ad hominem. The, your, your rebuttal to the people on the other side of uh, the John Lewis Act advocates in the Congress is you people are just trying to keep black people from voting. Otherwise, why would you even be making an issue out of this? And, mm -hmm. and I'm saying, I'm saying, no, I mean, we've had this conversation before. If I want to secure my vehicle or lock my bicycle, I'm not accusing your neighbors of being criminals. I'm exercising my prerogative over uh, asserting security. And uh, I, I, I want to know what's the uh, connect between uh, a concern about election security on the one hand and a an, uh, desire to keep minority people from voting on the other. Um, but there has to be a manufactured civil rights conflict all the time. Martin Luther King Jr. Day just passed. Mm -hmm. we, we have to go through this ritual of... Uh, the drama of American democracy not being complete because black people have not been fully incorporated into the democracy. But as an objective matter of fact, black people have been fully incorporated into the democracy. Barack Hussein Obama served eight years as president of the United States and Kamala Harris is vice president of the United States right now. Uh, James Clyburn got to decide who the Democratic Party nominee was going to be for president in uh, 2020. Uh, black people are all over the United States House of Representatives uh, et cetera. There are black Republicans who are advancing at the state level and at the federal level. Tim Scott might run for president. Municipalities and state governments throughout this country are overrun with black political representatives. 
This is partisan politics. Should you be able to show up at a nursing home with a bunch of absentee ballots and collect them and bring them in to, to seriously, I'm serious. How many and people were doing that? Pardon? But how many people were doing that? I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. But then you shouldn't have a problem if nobody was doing it with me forbidding it. What's wrong with me forbidding it? But my, my wanting to not have ballot harvesting and to have some signature security about absentee ballots and to have them postmarked before a particular day, this is all about keeping black people from voting? I'm sorry. I'm not a fool. I don't believe that. You may have calculated that with one set of rules, there'll be more Democrat votes than another. I, I, I want to know what you're looking at, John, because I think it's more interesting than anything that I'm saying. <laughs> Glad I am listening to everything. You ought to, bring her, you ought to bring her on camera so we can all appreciate her. I am listening to everything you're saying, but you can tell what's... I'm, I'm not in the room I'm usually in. It's absurd. Never mind, never mind, never mind, because I'm, 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 you know... I, I feel showed. I, I feel manipulated by this discussion about race and uh, voting rights. I'm sorry, I do. All right, this I is. I think it's a trope by Democrats that's meant to uh, demonize their opponents and to galvanize. It's it's ballot harvesting in the millions, galvanize black votes because if you don't vote for Democrats, the Republicans going to come and take your ballot away from you. This I, is. I'm sorry, I'm completely unconvinced by it. No, I know, I know what you mean. This is the question. I um, I just watched this documentary, Summer of Soul, where there's kind of the black Woodstock, and it's 1969, yeah. and it's in yeah. Harlem. And yeah. it was really good, but yeah. it captures the time. And the, the, the black, quote-unquote, radicals there are talking about freedom, that, that, that black people are seeking their freedom. And I started thinking about the use of that word at that time in particular – you can see even on episodes of Laughing, you know they would have you know maybe one token black person. I remember it was um, Johnny, the guy who played Bookman on Good Times was on Laughing for a while. And during the little blackout skits, at one point I think it's Ruth Buzzy asks him, "So when do you want freedom for your people?" And he says, "Now would be fine." And then the music <laughs> comes up and they start dancing. And you know freedom. And it's 1969. Now even then. There had been the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There had been the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I get the feeling nobody really paid. You had to be a political ha uh, hack. You had to be a political addict to pay much attention to the Fair Housing Act of 1968. I don't get the feeling there were any parties about that. But all three of those things had happened. And yet in 1969, it's all about where's our freedom. And a naive person could have wondered, well, what do you mean? You know, have, Didn't the 60s free you? So the question now is... The same kinds of black people are now saying, we don't have our freedom, you know, every King Day, that idea. And what you're asking is, what more do we need at this point? Because some people were even asking that in 1969, what do you mean freedom? What more do you need? Now, I might now say, well, think about the way the cops were still treating black people openly in 1969. Think about how few people had college degrees in 1969. Think about the fact that in 1969, if you went to an airport, you didn't see many black people at all. It was, it was a different world. That is not this world at all. Yet a certain kind of person is still saying, we still don't have our freedom. I think what they mean roughly is disproportionate rates of incarceration. They mean that statistically you can show that even middle-class black people don't get as good of a car or a house loan as equivalent 
white people, and they mean microaggressions, and I guess we could tick off a couple of other things. But the idea is that we still don't have our freedom yet. You're saying that that is an idle conversation. What, what should we be talking about instead? We should be talking about how do we actually live and exercise our freedom. The question is not acquiring our freedom. The question is what to do with it. Um, and, and I think it requires a complete sh uh, change in the, in the narrative. Um, I mean, I, I don't think the disparities, disparities are real, but I think that basically the ball is in our court. Uh, I, think, I think we are at a historical juncture of enormous significance in terms of the uh, conditions of African-Americans and our place within the society over the longer run. This, believe me, believe me. This uh, Martin Luther King uh, axe grinding stuff, with respect, with great respect to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but I'm talking about how it is that his memory is used and enacted into American politics by black people today. It's going to grow old. It's going to get stale. Uh, it's going to look like Amos and Andy before too long. Uh, it, it's going to be uh, tolerated uh, by people who are too kind to point out how irrelevant and ridiculous the whole thing is. The country soon enough, 10 years, 20 years, country's so dynamic, everything is changing. Hispanic population is growing. They have a completely different historical thing. The Asians are coming, they're significant. It's, the world is small, globalization, communication, instantaneous, you know, a possibility of doing business across continents. I mean, you know, so this idea that we, our ancestors were slaves 150 years ago, this reparation stick, stick, is pathetic. It, they are running on embers. They're, they're running on vapors. There's no actual substantive racial domination. Mass incarceration is racial domination, or mass incarceration is the manifestation of profound failures that men that reflected are reflected in the behaviors of people who find themselves behind bars. The homicide rate, the, the crime rate, the, the rate of criminal participation, the, the uh, social landscape, which produces people who are not fully realizing their human potential, and then who are failures in one or another arena of American uh, endeavor. Yeah, and you get disparities or underrepresentation amongst those who are excelling. And you think that you can blame it on the structure and on the system when, in fact, the arrow is pointing right back at you. You're free. As, as a matter of objective fact, you have to put down the ducky. You have to give it up. You have to perform without a net. You have to stop whining. You have to grow up. You have to take responsibility for your life. You're free. You ask, what do I have uh, as a, an agenda, as an alternative to whining and complaining about the fact that life isn't fair. I have embraced the responsibilities of your freedom. Get busy. It's an existential challenge, and if you don't do it, you're, you're walking into a condition of being, like, perpetually marginal, at least a very significant portion of the population, and all the politics that comes with that, all of the apologetics, the, the religious, quasi-religious apologetics, that comes with it, because the consequences Ibram X. Kendi knows very well, as Tom Ozzie Coates very, knows very well, the, the consequence of taking up my uh, point of view is the possibility of black failure and, and the looming rumor of inferiority, the, 
idea in the mind of the observer that black people somehow are, are intrinsically unfit. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, I believe that black people are intrinsically as fit as anybody for the challenges of the modern world. But the work has to be done. We have to actually measure up. You know, I, um, I had a thought on the subway yesterday. And yeah, I know I have all these subway scenes, but you learn a lot on the New York subway. <laughs> and I was sitting there and I was thinking, I wish I weren't having this thought, but I'm not sure I'm wrong. I was watching two guys from China. Um, and oddly enough, I was going up to school and then I saw them later in the day. So now I'm thinking they're undergraduates. Let's call them about 20. But they are Chinese nationals and they're on the train and they are, um, they're speaking Mandarin. And because I'm a linguist and because I've been messing with Chinese for the past six or seven years, I'm trying to listen to see how much I can get. And <laughs> they were saying, often in Mandarin, you say, nega, nega, nega. And what it means is like, like, like. And they were doing that. Nega, it means that, that, that. But it sounds like that. And it's at the point where if two people are talking and they keep it pretty basic. I can get like a third of it. You know, they've got the masks on, and I'm never going to get any better than that, but I can get like a third of it. And what they were talking about was their schoolwork and how they were, they were working hard, and they're trying to come up with little ways to kind of get over where they can. But it was basically, this stuff is hard, but it's the only way because we're going to get a such and such. And I can never quite understand what the goal was, what, what the such and such was, but that's just them. And they were smiling, they were having a good time. And then I thought about the nega, nega, nega thing. And you know the story from a couple years ago where black yeah. students at that California school get upset yeah. at the white professor for talking about that Chinese expression. Yeah. And I just kind of thought, and I felt bad thinking this, those, and those black students who I don't know, I never even saw pictures of them, I don't know who they were, but those black students aren't doing the same work as these Chinese guys. Instead of just thinking the world isn't perfect, and, you know, those Chinese guys have reason to think of discrimination, too, anti-Asian discrimination, especially lately. But these yeah. black guys and women, I, I imagine, they weren't doing the same thing. They're wallowing in this performative angst, and that is energy that would be better put into trying to get an A++ in that course and doing well in school, despite the fact that the world isn't perfect, despite the fact that some languages have words that sound kind of like the N-word that means something else. Why dwell on it? And I thought, these Chinese guys are doing something that most people do. This is normal. Black American students and, frankly, black American people are encouraged to think of ourselves as exceptions. And we're going to wallow. And then my contrast, sorry to go on so long, another thing I saw on the train, this was about 10 years ago, Newark, ghetto guys, like just straight out of the inner city, Newark guys, who were in cooking school. And they were talking about, well, the teacher didn't like my ratatouille. And I said, well, what? and it's all very black English, et cetera, et cetera. But they're talking about like my reduction, blah, 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 blah. And I remember <laughs> thinking, this is the way it should be. Yeah, you know, I, you don't I, have to I, lose I, your culture, but you yeah. make the best damn ratatouille that you can. Indeed. And the idea is not that the teacher is a racist. They were just trying to become great chefs. I wish there were more of that and less of... That Chinese word sounds like, you know, that sort of thing. I felt guilty oh, thinking you, that. You want the niggas to make some ratatouille. Yes, <laughs> I do. And you wouldn't mind it if they listened to some classical music every now and then. And to tell you the truth, they had I don't care what they listen to, just make the <laughs> fucking ratatouille. And I would rather see more of that. I don't think that those Newark guys 
thought the world was perfect. Frankly, if you're from inner city Newark, you know it isn't. But they were making the best of what they had, and I'll bet they are now working as cooks. Not cooks. Makes it sound like 1950. They're working as chefs. But too often we're encouraged to not be like those guys, and it bothers me. Okay, uh, John, I'm, I want to ask you about the local scene in New York. Uh, Eric Adams is mayor. Didn't some cops get shot in New York uh, the other day? If... I am not recalling that. However, I would also say that I am falling in love with him. You were right. Are you? In our conversation about three months ago, I was not paying enough attention. And I really do like his style. I like what he stands for. Eric Adams has a problem, though. And I'm surprised that he has it this late in the game. Eric Adams needs to speak more carefully. And I don't mean in terms of style. But he gets I'm sorry, home. excuse me for interrupting. Please excuse me. I just want to correct the record here. Yes, two New York Police Department officers shot, one fatally, uh, responding to a domestic violence call. Of a when was that? Son. That was, uh, uh, this is 11 hours ago, ABC New York. Okay, I have so followed no happened. news since then, right. Yeah, excuse okay. me for interrupting. But he's come, He's starting to grow on you, Eric Adams. And you, you I like, like style? this, this um, sort of... DNC style approach to issues that have to do with race, where you acknowledge that the world isn't perfect and yet you have sensible solutions. But this man makes too many gaffes. And I always oh. know what he means. He gets speaking, he's colloquial, he likes to try to connect with an audience, and then he'll say something that isn't the right thing, like saying that, you know, people aren't educated enough to be able to stay at home. What he meant was there's a certain kind of person who doesn't have the education to have the sort of job where you can stay home. But what he instead said was that these people aren't operating on the intellectual level to be, you know, he didn't mean it that way, but he said it that way. And I'm just thinking, you're not used to taking a deep breath and being careful when you talk. It's one thing for Donald Trump to just talk. You know, he's yeah, got I this see. iconic status, etc. Adams has done that like three times, or I can tell he didn't mean that. But the media is going to jump on him and pretend that he did mean it. I and see. it's going to erode his base if he's seen as so heartless. I wish he'd be more careful talking. But I like what he stands for. You know, I was Sounds being a like little... you wish that he were more articulate. Um, not like articulate. Were... I wish he would stop saying things that make him subject to being accused of, of being elitist or heartless or unfeeling. I don't, he can talk however he wants to talk. Just don't, don't say the wrong thing. He has to understand that people are listening to every sentence and I'm not sure he quite gets that, you know. Okay. Well, but I no, I'm liking what he's somehow. doing. I, I like, like advice. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's getting, now, you weren't going to have him to dinner. If, as I recall, you, he was the guy that you didn't, you weren't sure you wanted to have dinner with. Didn't like the cut of his jib. Well, I have gotten over that. I like the way he actually has appointed a superintendent of schools who understands the right thing, including that kids should be taught to read with phonics as opposed to being taught to read with rainbows and unicorns. It really is a special thing to see this person in trying to do the real thing. He's going to slip up now and then, and that's why I'm saying this now. Is he is but, he uh, discernibly anti-woke? He is anti-woke, as in excess woke. He won't have it. He is not for that sort of thing. And that's good because the kind of wokeness he's against doesn't help people. So, yeah, I think that he is a good left-of-center leader. I, I like where his heart is. I like 
the sorts of most of the sorts of people who he's appointing. I am now what about wishing the police. Him well. What about the police budget? Is it looking any different than it did under uh, de Blasio? Hard to say now, but he would never countenance any gesture towards the idea that there needs to be less police in a dangerous neighborhood. It won't do. What about diversity in the schools? Uh, is he for retaining exam at the specialized high schools? He is for retaining exams at high schools. He is appointing people who are not thinking in that way. And yeah, I think Eric Adams fundamentally understands if somebody says that you're not up to taking a test, you're being called dumb. I think he, I think he fully gets that. You have to come up with a different solution. So yeah, he's... Um, do you think he has the... Uh, confidence and the support of the business community uh, in, in uh, New York City. There's the, no way to know. tell yet. It hasn't, it hasn't been long enough. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if he gained it, though. He likes that club. He, he, he plays that, that side of the aisle. So I would imagine that he would definitely become that sort of mayor. Do the Jews like him? I don't know. I'll ask some. <laughs> I'll check it out. I think that I just saw I just saw Richie Torres on uh, the Bill Marshall. This is the congressman, the the very young uh, black Latino Puerto Rican. Uh, uh, We're going to see more of him. Yeah. Oh man, he was very impressive. Mm-hmm. And he's he was, got he a very. He's he's handsome. More... He's he's young. He's uh, extremely articulate. I know that you're not supposed to say that because it sounds like most people of color are not articulate. Uh, he but was he, very he, and, and and was very smart. I mean, he was very you know, cautious. Uh, I I really did like him. In my part of New York, among quote unquote my people, as in New Yorker reading, NPR listening sorts of people, it, the, the mayor was supposed to be Maya Wiley, and I find it very hard to imagine that what she would have done. Her heart's in the right place. What she would have done, the coalition she would have built, would be taking us in. The constructive, the truly constructive civil rights direction that the Adams, can't believe I'm saying this, that the Adams administration seems like it will. So, yeah, okay. on that one, I'm glad that you made me think about that at the time. And I am much more comfortable with him now than I was then. And part of it was because I was going with style. And I'm human, and I've never liked his attitude, you know, just like many people don't like mine. But I'm past that now. It's what he's doing that's important, not the cut of his jib. So, yeah. What are you writing about lately? I haven't had a chance to look. It all goes by so fast. I think the last thing I wrote for the Times was about, there's a study that says that the way we use English is based more on impressionism than on fact, that we're less rational in the way we write these days. And I was writing that that's less the case than that we're more informal. And I looked at some, some studies about that. But th there are these interesting psychologists who were thinking that dismay with the neoliberal consensus is making us retreat into ourselves and make arguments more from intuition than from rationality because things going on in the outside world seem irrational because of you know the, the neoliberal hegemony. That's a fascinating idea, but I thought, no, I don't think that's why people are saying like more than they used to. So that was the last Times piece. <laughs> and if you ask me what the one before that, that sounds was, like I, a nerdy, a nerdy linguist. You couldn't remember the one before that coming and going so fast. A it's... nerdy linguistic rabbit hole to go down, and <laughs> uh, the the self absorption of ac academics. Really, you think it's the neoliberal? That's what they think. It, you know, it's views about globalization and, and uh, markets and uh, 
And to be fair Cap- to the authors, they didn't say that that was the only reason, but that was clearly the one they found the most important. And I don't know them. And they were psychologists, not linguists. I was kind of thinking, as a linguist, how do I feel about this thesis when I also think about the neoliberal consensus myself sometimes? And I just kind of decided to, to push it that little. You know what I used before that, Glenn? Actually, I think it was that one. I think it was Sidney Poitier. Remember when we talked about Sidney Poitier and the voice? Yeah. And you said you should use that? Well, I did. Yeah. I, I did one about that, too. Oh, okay. Mm. So okay. thank you for the, for the, for the idea. No, no, I'll take the credit. Uh, for if you have an idea for the next one, let me know because I have to write it tomorrow <laughs> and I have no idea. So, so have you caught wind of the Amy Wax controversy at the Glenn? Yes, I have. I hope you're not offended by the fact that I had Amy Wax on this show. Since I'm not. Somehow are tied to the sinking ship or the, or the uh, you know, thing that's going aloft here as we Quite try to manage. I don't understand her latest one. And by I don't understand, I don't mean she therefore is the devil. But this thing she sang about Asians? Yeah, Amy Wax is the law professor, excuse me, at the University of Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, who as a guest on the Glenn Show a month ago said she thought that uh, Asian immigration wasn't good for America, that there are fewer Asians. And she tied that to cultural attributes of uh, quote-unquote Asians that she uh, uh, asserted were inconsistent with the thriving of American democracy too conformist, too subservient to authority, uh, easily put into the service of this uh, woke agenda of this or that. She was particularly hard on South Asian women in the medical profession, but uh, she probably has some experience in medicine. So she's also, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think she has a degree in medicine, to be honest. She does. As well yeah. as a degree in law. So so Amy Wax, of uh, controversial opinion and Previously at the Glenn Show two years ago said that black students didn't do so well academically at the Penn Law School in her experience. And previous to that said that bourgeois values and uh, European values were superior in terms of uh, a cohesion and productivity in uh, modern advanced society and such like that. So she has controversial opinions. And, you know, with the two that you just mentioned, you, whatever, you know, problems you have with either what she's saying or the fact that she said it or how she said it. I can imagine where she's coming from. I can imagine why someone would say this. With the Asian one, and this is something that almost nobody's ever doing, but it sounds like it. That's the only thing she's ever said where it sounds like she made something up to say just to get people upset. And nobody does that, which means I can't figure out what's going on in her head that she would think that whatever problem she has with any tendencies among Asians in terms of culture, that it's a problem for American culture that there should be fewer Asians. It sounds like somebody in 1885, and I know she's not coming from that place, but I don't know what cultural factors she finds so... I don't know why she finds those cultural factors, if they're real, such a threat to the fabric of the nation. Did, did that make any more sense to you than it does to me well no it does it doesn't and i i disputed it in real time on the show i i said i i thought that the phenomenon that she was calling attention to in this case the warm embrace of diversity equity and inclusion and woke values in uh venues of 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 uh you know highly select how does that tilt asian yeah competitive well she's saying that they they are undermining the foundation of meritocratic judgment, even though they're excelling at those very criteria. 
which was the point that I was making. People are mm -hmm. effective. We want effective people in our midst. That's good for us. And and she was saying, but at the same time, there and this is a, a claim. I don't know that it's true. Uh, somehow uh, not pushing back against the creeping woke thing and and that uh yeah the spirit of liberty doesn't beat in their breasts that's a quote that's a quote for what she what she was saying she was characterizing in a very uh stereotyping way uh cultural traits that she argued were in conflict with the maintenance of our uh of our political order i mean I, that puts it in very abstract terms but i i think that's the best that i can do and and, and the the issue there are two questions here. Is that a that's correct or incorrect? And then the other question is, what kind of person asks that, makes that kind of claim? And both of those questions are in play. You just put the second one in play with respect to Amy. She said, why would she, why, what, what's the... And ordinarily, my instinct is to resist the ad hominem question because I think it's an effort to, to get around answering the, what the is usually a very good claim. Question. Right, yeah. And then I have said in response to people who've asked me, CNN and others, uh, news outlets because this Amy came on my show here to say the things that she said about Asians that were controversial. Uh, what did I think should the University of Pennsylvania discipline her? And I've said, no, I think uh, people should refute her. And I think uh, the um, uh, fact that she says something that is in error is not, is not disqualifying. I mean, it, it's disqualifying to whether or not I agree, but it's not you don't punish people for saying stuff that's wrong. I mean, you 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 argue uh, the the contrary of what they say. Um, but this other the, the ad hominem question just looms. I mean, uh, you, you know, they call her a racist. Is she a racist? I'm I'm very reluctant to call her a racist, and uh, maybe I have to ask myself about that. I mean, the, you know, I. I don't know her to be a racist in terms of having an invidious motive, but uh, the, the vitriolic reaction that I've gotten from a lot of people for having her on the show, and, it, and they've raised questions about what are my motives uh, for having her on. Not that I'm necessarily associated with her views, although platforming is a substantive act of speech, isn't it? I mean, you build the platform, somebody stands on top of it and, and shouts out. Did you contribute to the shouting by building the platform? It looks like the answer to that has to be yes. If you knew in advance that they were going to shout out and you built the platform anyway, sounds like you're implicated. You know. But the sorts of things that she says are said by other people as well. Yes. And that means that they exist, and if they're wrong, then what you do is you say why these things are wrong. But the idea that you don't let people be aired saying them is more about the pleasure of shouting something down and proving that you're better than it and that you know that the world is evil, rather than something that makes any sense. Amy's not alone, and... So how about she says these things, which it might not be hard for a human being to fall into thinking, and then you show why it's wrong. The idea that John Stuart Mill doesn't apply simply where race is concerned is very critical race theory, hyper-woke. The idea that the rules are different when it comes to power differentials. No, they aren't. 
I don't see why power differential somehow means that we have to change the rules of the game. And with let Amy, me, let me just. I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to remind people what John Stuart Mill said, which is basically you benefit from refuting a wrong argument. And if you forbid the wrong argument to be spoken, eventually your belief in the right argument becomes stale and hollow because you have no idea why you believe that is right. You're believing it as a ritualistic religious uh, belief, not as a belief that is arrived at through reason. So you need the wrong argument to be able to be advanced so that you can hone your own uh, command of the right argument. And there's a certain kind of person who says confidently in response to that, but that's something a white man came up with. No, no, that's a point that requires defending. <laughs> Why was he wrong just because he was white? Then another kind of person digs into the life of John Stuart Mill and notices that, wow, big surprise. And I mean, this is a big, big surprise that he was a racist by our standards. What a surprise that this man in the middle of the 18th. And so that means that his ideas are wrong. No, prove it. How is he wrong? How does this not apply? Somebody from Ghana could have come up with the same idea. And so, yeah, that's where it is. And as for Amy's sanctioning, you know, she really does push the envelope in that given that she's talking about these racial issues in the real world, I can certainly imagine that there might be a problem with her teaching introductory classes. I can imagine that students might feel that they should be able to choose whether or not to put themselves in her hands if, because it's natural to hear possible bias in the sorts of things she says. So I understand that she would not be allowed to teach the 101 classes, but she should be allowed to teach other classes. The idea that you get stripped of your tenure because you say the wrong thing about race and race is different is the kind of piety that I, that I revile, frankly. She should not be stripped of her tenure. She should not be stripped of her epaulets in that way. But I must admit, I do understand that Students may feel, I wish to be able to not take a course with her. And that might mean that she doesn't get to teach some of the first year classes. I can't say I can't, that. That's I don't agree with that, but I, I definitely agree that she should not be sanctioned. But I don't agree that uh, students' feelings about being exposed to someone who has uh, uh, noxious political opinions in their view and they feel that they don't want to be taught should govern whether or not a person is put in front. I mean, you know, it's the, the world is a tough place. There are Trump voters in the world. There are Trump, there are Trump apologists in the world. There, there are people who don't believe in climate uh, alarmism uh, in the world. Should it be possible that a science professor would not be permitted to teach an introductory course because he's quote unquote a climate denier? in terms of his uh, espoused erratic, mm. uh, idiosyncratic beliefs? Should a Trump voter be not able to teach the introductory composition class or literature class because people in 90 to 10 are offended by the fact that this person likes Donald Trump? Where do you let the mess in is always the question. Because here I am arguing a different side. Race is different. I'm imagining if when I was it's in college, and I have to take some 101 course with somebody who's known for just putting it out there that black students tend not to do well in my classes, and that's all she says. And she just kind of lets it sit there. Black students just don't do as well. Well, that's it. Wait, wait, wait. And so I'm 19, and I'm going to take a class with this person who has said this. And you know what, Glenn, to be honest, the kind of 19-year-old that I happen by chance to be, I would have thought, I know she said this, and I'm going to show her that it's wrong. That's what I would have done because I'm weird in that particular narrow way. But let's face it, not everybody has that, that kind of mental makeup. And I'm not complimenting myself. It's, it's another side of being arrogant. But I was never 
humble about that. But a lot of black kids, especially because, and this is the mess, that whole element in post-1966 American culture where there's this looming idea that to be a real grind is racially inauthentic, that's always hanging in the air. It's this, it's this little tincture in the air. That's already there. And then you have this teacher who's saying, you guys aren't good at this. I wouldn't feel good about a lot of my black 19-year-old comrades having to work with that. Talk about stereotype threat. Well, suppose you know, it's true, John. Suppose about? it's true. Suppose it's true that they don't do as well. Isn't that the question? I mean... Most people are not in a position to pull the camera that far back. Well, I don't care what position they're in. I'm running the university. I mean, the the issue here is whether or not I I, uh, regulate who's put in front of students based upon how students feel about their opinions. And I'm against that. And I'm saying that extends to race and extends in particular to this question, which is vitally important. You have a way of selecting people to get into the school. You're using racial preferences when you select them. Now they come into the school and they don't do as well, or they do do as well. That's a factual question. Suppose they don't do as well. Am I permitted to talk about it? And if I do, am I presumed to be a racist and not trustworthy to have students of color uh, associated with me? And and to, to concede that, to let the black student's objection to a statement of fact which can either be invalidated or not determine who's put in front of the students is to collaborate in a kind of corruption and a kind of cover-up because maybe they're not doing as well. And if they're not doing as well, are we really going to stick our heads in the sand? That seems to be what's being uh, recommended here. To the contrary, the dean of the law school should stand up to the students and say, I don't care what you feel about Amy Wax's views, race, wrongs, and remedies. That's a book that she has out there. In the book, she makes arguments about what is owed and not owed to black people as a concept of historical discrimination. People who support reparations will disagree with those arguments. They might even be offended by them. Really, I'm going to allow that sentiment to determine uh, how I conduct pedagogy in the school? Grow up is what I want to say to these people. You don't have to agree with her. Now, she's incompetent. That's one thing. But to the extent that she's actually discharging her uh, duties effectively, I don't believe reaction to her political opinion should be allowed to color whether or not she's put in front of students. And, And I think it's the job of the administration to assert that in the face of what might prove to be withering political pressure to the contrary, some of it coming from John McWhorter. We're going to have to agree to disagree only in that her book, her 2005 book, this goes long before it was as easy to make statements in a venue like this. Her book is indispensable, and it's written in a tone unlike the one that she often uses when she speaks more freely. And anybody who would read her book from 2005 and think, this person should not be teaching, and there were people already at that time, no, that won't do. However, some of the blunter statements she's made, such as the three that we've mentioned on this show, I can see those making a certain kind of student so uncomfortable, and not always for reasons you and I would disagree, would agree with, but then again, you know, we can't change that person. They live in this society. They're getting certain messages. They would be so uncomfortable that it might interfere with their performance. I can actually, I would sympathize with somebody who didn't, want to put themselves under the power of 
somebody who had said things like that. I guess I'm just... Here, I, I, I want to say something. I want to say something, John, it, it, which is uh, it, to agree with you in, in, a, in a different register. I, I talk about I don't like to add hominem move. I want to argue if she says something controversial. I want to argue the case. I want to argue what it is that she said. Is it right or wrong? I don't want to argue is she a racist for having said it. On the other hand, if a person has a track record of saying outrageous things across a half dozen different specific areas of public life, easily anticipated in advance to know that they're going to be outrageous. Let me call that person a provocateur, uh, a, a person who sets off small fires. Uh, wherever they go, they offend. Uh, they, they, you know, they fart in public, quote unquote. I, I, I'm sorry, and I mean no disrespect to Amy Wax. I'm trying to illustrate an idea. The idea is a pattern of behavior. The pattern of behavior is the engendering of outrage, okay? Now, suppose that's the motive. Suppose the motive is not truth-seeking as such, but attention-seeking, creating an event, saying the thing that is known to be across the line, that is known to be bound to start uh, a um, storm of protest in order to call attention to oneself. Suppose that's what's going on. And you're the platformer. You're the guy that's building the platform. Now you're in the circus business. You're in the business of, of spectacle. Do you want to be in that business? Is that your business? And that could be a reason to not build that platform if that's not your business, if your business is not uh, the uh, uh, putting putting on performances of uh, you know, freak shows. Again, I mean, I, know, I mean no disrespect. I hope that what I'm saying is understood. I, I'm, I'm saying the gadfly, uh, the, the provocateur, the person who stands out, who stands out, that can become an occupation in and of itself. And yes. I don't necessarily want to fuel that. That's not, you know, that's not my business. There comes a point when you have to decide whether the person is a provocateur rather than just provocative. I don't know. In the in the aughts, there were people who were on TV all the time in, say, 2003, who aren't now, because a general consensus emerged, even among people on the right, that these people were more throwing bombs than saying things that needed to be taken seriously. I'm not going to name any names. But one has to decide. And with Amy Wax, I imagine there's that, too. And I... I'm not sure where I would put her. Like, I really do have trouble quite getting into her head. I was with her more in the aughts than lately. But, yeah, what, who, who deserves to be on your show? I think that, that there is an issue there. Yeah. Um, but she's a tough one because the 2005 book was so damn good. And, you know, some of the questions she asks, you know, if she talks about the issue of black students in the classroom, that does need to be talked about. It's not simply a racist statement to say that, as we have said. This latest one, wow. And so, yeah, it's it's an issue. But I think, Glenn, that we might need to end. Yes, I think we. it's still the appropriate time to end. I think I've gotten myself in enough trouble, John, uh, to last for a while, you know. <laughs> well, that's, that's we'll what see how people is. respond. Thank
Thanks. Uh, we were we had a little rough uh, transmission issues there along the way, but the editors will clean it up. It's always good to talk to you, and we're going to talk again soon for the Q and A. You too, Glenn. Talk to you very soon. Take care.